welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, James and I are chatting with Antonio Giuliano, founder and CEO of the DYDX project. We look at how DYDX are leveraging Starkware's Stark technology stack to create a different kind of zero-knowledge roll-up from the ZK roll-ups we have featured previously. We discuss how the DYDX system works, what went into their decision-making around which L2 construction to go with, the goal of DYDX, and how their new system aims to get them there. But before we start in, I want to let you know about an event that I'm running next week, May 19th. It's a joint ZK Sessions plus ZK Jobs Fair. ZK Sessions is a series of monthly events I've been doing since the beginning of this year. This particular ZK Sessions is all about ZK languages, and it will feature short talks from the teams who are developing the domain-specific languages you need to build with zero-knowledge proofs. So if you are a dev thinking of jumping into the ZK space, but you're confused by all the options, this is definitely for you. Right after the ZK Sessions event, which should last about an hour and a half to two hours, we will be hosting the second ZK Jobs Fair. Again, it will be on gather.town, and you are welcome to come by and just get to know the teams who are looking to hire new talent. With every ZK Jobs Fair, I'm releasing a new ZK Jobs Board. Here you can see open positions from many of the best teams in the space. The Jobs Board is public. Be sure to check it out. And if you do send an application, just let them know that you found out about it through the ZK Podcast. I also want to take a moment to thank this week's sponsor of the podcast, Least Authority. Least Authority is a leader in the security of distributed systems. They provide security consulting services, develop open source products, and contribute to the advancement of learning and research in the field. In addition to their security reviews of innovative projects such as Chia Network, Mina, Loopring, and Filecoin, this May they will be releasing a white paper on ZCAPs, or Zero Knowledge Access Passes. ZCAPs, adapted from Privacy Pass, is an anonymous token-based authorization protocol that facilitates an online exchange of value while disconnecting the necessary payment data from the day-to-day usage service data of customers. They've implemented ZCAPs in private storage, which is a cloud storage service designed with privacy and security features to give you control over who has access to your data. Private storage will be launched just after the white paper release. Sign up for Least Authority's newsletter to be notified on the release of the ZCAP's white paper, private storage, security audit reports, job openings, and more. Visit leastauthority.com newsletter to join the mailing list. I've added the link to this in the show notes. So thanks again, Least Authority. Now here's our episode all about DYDX. So this week, James and I are chatting with Antonio Giuliano, who's the founder and CEO of DYDX. Welcome to the show, Antonio. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hey, James. Hi, Anna. How's it going? All good. I want to find out first, what is DYDX? Maybe give me the high-level description of what that project is. Yeah, absolutely. So DYDX is a decentralized exchange, and we're really focused on advanced financial products and specifically derivatives right now. Our main products that we have on the platform is this thing called a perpetual contract, And this is financially the product that was really popularized by BitMEX and now is extremely popular in the crypto space. Uh, It's the most popular product by volume in the entire space. Uh, It does more volume than everything else in crypto put together on perpetuals. 
And that's kind of the main reason why we're so focused on it. Specifically, what perpetuals are, they're a type of synthetic contract, which can give you price exposure to any asset. All you need is kind of some collateral in the system. And then you can synthetically trade any uh, product that you might want to trade. The main way they function is kind of based on this core component called a funding rate, which is a dynamic interest rate that's paid between longs and shorts. But anyways, the, the main reason they're so popular is because they can be traded with really high leverage. So this is where you see the 100x leveraged products of the world. And so and not everyone trades with that high leverage, but leverage itself is a really powerful concept because you can kind of just come to an exchange with a certain amount of money say $100, and you can start trading as if you had multiples of that amount of money. Mm. So you could start come to the exchange with $100 and start trading as if you had $1,000 or potentially even more based on how much leverage you're willing to take on. And that's the reason why these products are so, so popular is because uh, they allow traders to trade as if they had more capital. Cool. Where's DYDX come from? Because it's kind of neat. It looks really like it looks like a bit of a, a function or something. What is it? Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of belies my background a bit. Um, but the first thing that I thought about when I thought about uh, starting a company that built derivatives was derivatives in the mathematical sense rather than the financial one. So my first company, I guess, like I thought about the name for like months and I couldn't come up with anything. But somehow, some way or another... When I thought of derivatives, I just thought of, you know, dy over dx as in differentiating yeah. something in math. And it also was like four letters kind of sounded like an exchange, like a GDAX or like a Binance or something like that, dydx. So it seemed like the name fit. Nice. And also like, I think your logo kind of shows that too. It has like this special D. Yeah. It's like the special D. It's like lowercase delta in Greek or something. <laughs> nice. So are you a dex? Yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of DEX, um, but I would call us basically what's known as a hybrid exchange, which kind of means we have some centralized components to the exchange and then some decentralized components to the exchange. Our centralized components, we run our order book and our order matching system uh, in a central way to run on servers like a normal centralized exchange. But importantly, we run on smart contracts uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. And this is where you get all of the non-custodial trading, all of the really big improvements in transparency that come with a decentralized exchange. But it kind of all runs through uh, this central order book and order matching system as well. So the uh, smart contracts exist to make sure that the order matching system is behaving correctly and that all its actions are transparent? Yeah, that's basically right. And also uh, that we don't custody user funds when they're trading on the platform. You can always just go directly to the smart contracts and trade or withdraw your funds. Um, it can't be censored from doing that. Mm -hmm. So in what you described, though, like uh, you're saying this originally existed on L1, all on L1. And now you're moving to become more of an L2 setup. What does your L2 look like? Like we, you know, we kind of said it's not a ZK roll up. So, so what is it? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think it's basically, by definition, a Stark-based rollup. Uh, we partnered with Starkware, who's effectively providing all of the Stark-based proofs that our system runs on. One important advantage and one important distinction is that we're running on Starkware's rollup mode, which means we use layer one Ethereum data availability, um, you know, similar to an optimistic rollup or something like that. And therefore, the system is entirely non-custodial because all the balances are stored on chain. You can always just go to Ethereum to be able to withdraw, be able to trade. Um, and that's kind of where we get a lot of the, the DEX uh, improvements from. How does a Stark like version of a ZK rollup, like what does that mean, actually? Because I thought there was a reason that Stark 
L2s were built slightly differently because of the limitations of Starks? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm probably not the most qualified person to, to answer this. James probably knows a lot more than I do. Um, but uh, my <laughs> my impression is basically that, that Starks um, are a pretty good improvement in kind of the scalability um, and kind of the proving times and the proof sizes over what existed in like the very earliest zero-knowledge proofs. Um, and that's why Starkware is using them and, and is really focusing on them right now is it's the technology that gets you the most amount of scalability and also the most amount of expressiveness uh, in your programming language that's available right now. So for the you know, new DYDX layer two, this is more similar to ZK rollups, but powered by Starks and a little bit of a departure from the earlier Stark X systems, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the main difference, uh, Starkware offers two different modes, which they call roll-up mode, which is what I talked about with on-chain availability and what we're using. And then they also offer what they call Validium, um, which is effectively like a, a federated group of uh, data providers uh, promise to provide your data to you. And I think there are trade-offs with these. Obviously, it costs more in gas fees to publish all of the data on-chain and do in full roll-up mode. But also, of course, it is more decentralized, as much as decentralization is a spectrum. Now, as long as you trust Ethereum and, and you know you can run an Ethereum node, you can always get your data. And we felt that was something that was important uh, to be able to provide to our users. And we were happy to pay the, the modest, I would say, increase in gas fees to put all the data on chain to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good way of putting it is the, the core difference between a rollup and a plasma or validium is where the data is and whether any user can go and get that data uh, at any time. So last year, I actually had Will Harborn from Diversify, also my co-founder at the Zero Knowledge Validator, and Tom Brand from Starkware come on the show and explain the Diversify setup, the way that they were working with StarkX. And I, I kind of want to, like, I remember we walked through the federated system. We under, I, like, we went through, like, what the committee looked like and everything. I, I, I want to understand a little bit more what it looks like now. Like, you're saying that you kind of use the roll-up version. But what does that, like, what does that actually mean? Yeah, absolutely. So... At a high level, the data that exists on our system that we're using with Starkware is all the user balances and also a bit of data about which particular orders have been filled and things like that. But that's the only data that you need to be able to reconstruct the entire state of the system. So whenever uh, an order is filled, the only thing that's actually going on chain or into Starkware system are the actual matches um, or the actual trades. Oh. Orders that are just placed but never filled are not actually going through Starkware system. And that's uh, kind of what I was talking about with the, the off-chain order book and order matching system that we're running. So, okay, whenever a trade happens, uh, obviously there are two counterparties, there's a maker and a taker, and both parties' balances will be updated. So the data that's actually going on chain is all of the uh, accounts whose balances changed in the current Stark block. Only you know those accounts have to actually go on chain because of course we've been publishing data since the beginning of the system and you can always go back uh, in time on the blockchain and be able to, to reconstruct the entire state tree um, with just like the delta balances basically. Mm. So that's what goes on chain. When I say on chain, it uses uh, the call data effectively for the transaction, which is not accessible by smart contracts, but that's okay um, because all we really need is people that are watching the blockchain uh, to be able to reconstruct the state 
And it's a lot cheaper to publish data there than it is to a smart contract state. But effectively, the smart contracts are uh, requiring that whenever a new Stark block is published, that the delta data for all the, the delta balances uh, is published in the call data for that Starkware block to be mined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you pointed out a really interesting property of the you know, validity proof based uh, rollups versus optimistic rollups. You said that the only thing that goes on chain is the deltas, the changes in the account balances, and the orders don't go on chain. This is one of the like most compelling advantages of validity proof systems is that you can drop all of the extra data. You can drop all of the orders because you don't care what they were as long as they were matched correctly. And the validity proof proves that there were orders that match these state changes, that match these uh, updates, all these trades. Does that mean like in the optimistic rollup, you'd actually have to, if you were to try to create something similar, you'd have to include all the orders, even if they never went through? Um, You would have to include all of the orders that were matched, that went through. Oh, that did go through. But you are doing that anyway, aren't you? Yeah, it's actually an important difference. And I think it's a good call out by James, because if you kind of look at like the distribution of number of trades on an exchange, it's really, really top heavy. Like there are market makers that are quoting on the exchange Mm. and, you know, say a market maker may do thousands of trades in a given batch, but actually we only have to publish like one Delta balance for that market maker. So it's actually a really important uh, nuance, but something that gives us a lot more scalability. Do you also find in these setups that there's a lot of trades happening between kind of like the same actors back and forth? So like you also wouldn't have to publish each one of those? Exactly. Oh, interesting. So the advantage of the you know ZK model is that you prove that those orders all existed and you don't have to show them. Uh, in the optimistic model, you have to put all the orders on chain too so that anyone trying to prove fraud can show the orders and can have a guarantee that those orders are available to be included in a fraud proof. Uh, so the ZK model here gets a you know pretty big scaling benefit because it can just drop all of that information entirely. Hmm. What made you make the choice in this case? Like you must have been looking at all the L2s and and evaluating like how they worked. Do you feel like this one fit your particular use case and needs the best? Or was there, yeah, like what, what was going into that evaluation? I definitely think it was a combination of both Starkware just being at the real forefront of production ready scalability technologies, I would say, and also our unique use case. Uh, we kind of talked about the advantage that we get as an exchange of just having to publish our delta balances rather than all the trades on chain, which is a really big deal. One of the other things that you know is unique about DYDX, which we touched on at the beginning, is we're a hybrid decentralized exchange, um, which means we have our central matching model and central order book already. And that fits really well with Starkware's current model and emphasis on currents, but their current model is basically kind of a single uh, central prover to the Stark system. And one of the things that we're going to be working on going forwards is being able to fully decentralize our system. And that maps really well with Starkware's uh, own roadmap to kind of decentralize uh, their prover network. Because the thing we don't have right now for trading specifically uh, is we it's not fully censorship resistant basically on the trading side. It is fully censorship resistant on the withdrawal side. Like you can always close your positions and you can always withdraw. Um, but we could say you know we could basically censor users if we want to from using our product or kind of our website. 
hmm. and going through our central liquidity. Because of that central part of the hybrid. Yeah, exactly. The order matching engine. Exactly. Yeah. So I think Starkware's current system, first of all, is really general, but is an especially good fit for uh, exchanges that are operating on this hybrid model which both us and Diversify currently do. So I think that's some good empirical evidence of that. Maybe taking a step back and talking about our thought process for uh, choosing a layer two in general at a very high level, there were three main classes of things that we considered, which is probably going to be obvious to everybody who's paying attention to this podcast. But the first was other layer one blockchains uh, that are not Ethereum. Second is optimistic rollups and kind of optimism is the, the leader there. Um, and then third is uh, Stark-based rollups in, in Stark, where we think it's, it's the leader there for sure. Kind of going through these one by one in terms of why not another layer one blockchain right now. This isn't a super original thought, but like just the ecosystem for building decentralized apps on these other chains is not quite there yet. Uh, like the wallets are, are mm-hmm. really subpar in general. Uh, the cross-chain technology is like, how are our users going to get tokens over if we move to another layer one chain? James is making a face when you do that because <laughs> this falls on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Partially my fault. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, that's the point, right? Like people are working on it. Um, and I think there are a lot of great things being worked on. But at a really high level, like we need to scale right now basically mm. because our users were just getting crossed by these gas fees the amount of gas a dydx transaction uses compared to a uniswap transaction or so on layer one is roughly like five times higher oh. or so um so our users oh. were having to pay hundred dollars in gas fees pretty regularly that would literally spike up to thousands of dollars um in gas Oof. fees at the times when uh when the gas price was going nuts. And that's actually the time people most want to trade to. Um, yeah. So who's going to use it in exchange where you have to pay hundreds of dollars in fees for, to make a single trade? Not that many people. Um, so we needed to solve <laughs> it like right now, basically. But kind of getting back to the question of, you know, why not other layer ones just to finish there? And other people have said this too, but also like the developer environment there is, you know, is nascent, I would say. Like there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there. Um, but you know, a lot of these other chains have their smart contracts written in Rust, which is fine. Like, I'm actually of the opinion that, like, you know, any good developer should be able to write smart contracts in any given language. But, you know, there's not quite things like, uh, you know, Truffle or, or Equivalence mm-hmm. or like Hard Hat and stuff like that to be able to develop on those chains quite yet. So we didn't think the time was was right to move to a different layer one quite yet. And then we kind of touched on this before, but like there are several advantages, I think, of use, for us of using Starkware over using optimistic rollups. The first is, you know, increase in scalability. Um, the second, which is basically the same thing as other layer ones, is production readiness. I mean, just look at uh, the, the apps that have been live on Starkware. Uh, you mentioned this before, but Diversify has been live on Starkware for the past year or so which gave us a lot of confidence that they would be able to build a production grade system for us now and, and you know not at some point in the future. Mm. And then the third thing, um, which is an interesting point as well that I'm sure we can dive into is kind of the withdrawal times on, uh, on optimistic rollups uh, are usually on the order of a week or so, uh, whereas the withdrawal times on, uh, on zero knowledge rollups, are, it really just depends on how, how much gas you're willing to pay and how frequently you're willing to publish the batches on chain. For us, we currently have that set to eight hours, but likely it'll be uh, lower in the future. But being able to withdraw in that time period is a really big advantage for users. Um, 
You can, of course, on the withdrawals, use kind of a central liquidity provider to basically front the withdrawals for the system. And we're actually doing that right now on Starquare's uh, system. So users of DYDX don't even have to wait that eight hours. You know, they just, it, it's as fast as withdrawing from a, any other DEX or a centralized exchange because uh, we're kind of fronting the withdrawals there. But the thing that you have to think about if you're running one of these central withdrawal providers is how much capital do you need to be able to run one of them? And we were kind of thinking about it and we were like, okay, with optimistic rollups, uh, you know, we need a week's worth or whoever's providing the capital needs a week's worth of capital of withdrawals on the entire exchange. And even for us at our scale, that's quite a lot of money. It's wow. like probably like tens of millions, maybe up to like a hundred million dollars or so. And as we scale, like imagine trying to do that for an exchange that's aspiring to scale to like a Binance uh, level scale or something like that. Wild. It's quite high. Um, whereas it's it's definitely tenable for us to to be able to front the withdrawals for you know currently we're doing eight hours as we scale hopefully uh, we'll shrink that time even lower uh, so the withdrawal provider only needs like capital proportional to an hour's worth of withdrawals on the system. Quick question: uh, What is the reason for the eight hour delay right now? It's purely a gas cost optimization thing. Um, uh huh. Whereas you're paying like you know if you did every hour you'd have to pay roughly eight times more in gas costs. It's not exactly eight times more because basically the gas costs are, I believe it's around 5 million gas right now, uh, flat fee to like, you know, prove the the stark uh, proof. And then plus like all of the data that you're doing and in, in kind of the validity proofs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's not a question of like, you need eight hours. It's a question of what's the right trade-off for uh, the cost of operating the system. And as the system grows, you can do that more and more often. Yeah, exactly. And that's purely just offset by the trading fees that we're making. So as hopefully volume increases and our fees increase, it makes sense for us to publish them more frequently. This is, uh, I think, one of the interesting trade-offs of Starks versus Snarks is that Starks have a uh, higher base cost for these sorts of things. That actually leads me to another question, though. So you've kind of done the rundown of what you, you chose not to do. Like you chose not to do other L1s, you chose not to do optimistic roll-up, but why why not do a ZK roll-up, like the ZK snark roll-up? And I feel like what we started with was more like, you know, the comparison to optimistic, but not necessarily to snarks. So yeah, like you must have looked at all of those options as well. What made you make the call? Yeah, we definitely did look at all of them. I think the main reason for choosing Starkware was a combination of production readiness and what we deem to be like professionalism on their team. Mm-hmm. Not to say, you know, I just think Starkware is like the most professional and has like a really high quality team. And empirically, they had been running with Diversify for a while. So like I said, that gave us a lot of confidence to, to go with them. So we've been talking a lot about why DYDX decided to go with, you know, a ZK rollup using Starks. And a, a big part of that was that the limit order book that you are running, the order matching system, kind of necessitates the choice. Is the order matching system works better with a ZK rollup? Can you talk a little bit more about why DYDX built a limit order book when a lot of the DEX activity in the space has been moving towards automated market makers? Absolutely. So I think at the highest level, um, it's worth talking about what our goal is at DYDX. And our goal is to become one of the biggest crypto exchanges, period, but on kind of a three to five year time horizon. And that informs a lot of the decisions that we make, I think. 
So if you want to be one of the biggest crypto exchanges, of course, you must support the biggest market in crypto, uh, which is perpetuals right now. One of the interesting you know, metrics on perpetuals is that just in the past year, they surpassed all of the rest of volume on everything else in crypto combined. And we think that they and kind of more broadly, the derivatives market on crypto is only going to grow from here. So that led to our choice on you know, why derivatives. Um, addressing your question on why order books as opposed to automated market makers. This is not a super original thought, but I subscribe to it. Um, and that's order books, I think, are more efficient for uh, building liquidity than automated market makers are. And of course, there's strides to improve this, like the stuff that Uniswap V3 is doing with, not to step on their toes, but I would I would kind of call that like a hybrid, like AMM, like order book, because like you can like place and cancel in, in different levels and stuff like that which I think is really cool, actually. <laughs> One of the ways to look at it is uh, changing the AMM to simulate an order book. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit in between. And I think that's awesome. And like, there's trade-offs like, you know, all over the spectrum. But answering the question of why order books, like for a given capital amount, you can just get much more liquidity, much more depth on the book with an order book than you can with an automated market maker. And to give people a sense right now, roughly, I think Uniswap has about 800 million or so locked up in their ETH USDC pool. And that translates into about uh, $2 million worth of depth within 1% slippage. Um, and that's the same depth we have, basically $2 million of depth within 1%. Uh, but we only have our market makers quoting with like $2 million um, on the platform. Um, and of course, Uniswap will improve. And, you know, of course, DYDX will also improve the amount of capital and like market makers that we have as well. But just we think we're going to be able at a really high level to build a much superior product experience with order books than we are with automated market makers, specifically for the, call it like top 50 or top 100 markets. And that's like a really important point, actually. And again, this isn't a super original thought, but I think the thing that automated market makers are great at is kind of quoting on the long tail of markets. I mean, just look at yeah. the number of markets that Uniswap supports versus even like a Binance or like an FTX or something uh, who do great execution on being able to list the long tail of markets with an order book based model. And automated market makers, that's the real killer use cases. They're just better for supporting like the long tail of markets because it's so easy to provision liquidity for them. But, you know, going back to what I led with, like, what is our goal here is to become one of the biggest crypto exchanges. So you have to like form an opinion on which one of these two is there actually going to be more volume in kind of like the top, call it like 100 markets or so by volume or, you know, 100 plus markets. And it's certainly an open question as to like how many cryptocurrencies will there be um, with tons of volume and what will the volume distribution look like. Mm. But currently right now, just Bitcoin perpetuals, like just that one market is almost bigger than everything else in crypto put together. Um, so it's very top heavy in terms of volume towards like the top coins. And that's why we're focused on order books, because we think for the foreseeable future, most of the volume will be concentrated in these top markets and we can build a better product by serving them with order books. Interesting. Uh, do you have a Bitcoin perpetual dominance uh, index that I can track? <laughs> yeah, I think there probably is one on CoinGecko or something like that. Uh, I, I don't know what the current number is. I think it's like 40% of like all volume in crypto is on Bitcoin perpetuals. So. Incredible. Yeah, that actually, I mean, you just spoke to this this question that we had, which is about the, se the selection of assets that you've chosen to list. It sounds like you haven't quite decided how wide you're going to 
go or or have you like what you just said you you don't exactly know what what the future holds for this like first of all how do you even make these decisions because that will change right those top tokens are going to change dramatically over the next few years anyway probably yeah absolutely and i think this is a good segue to one other really big advantage we get on our layer 2 system but i'll kind of talk about historically how our layer 1 contracts were set up and how that really limited us in the number of markets we could support but on our layer one perpetual contracts, they only supported what's known as isolated margining. And that means for every different market you might want to trade on, you have to put down collateral separately for that market. So like if you want to trade both the Bitcoin and ETH perpetuals, you got to put down your thousand you know, die or whatever of collateral on the Bitcoin perpetual and then your thousand on the ETH one separately. So this just really limits capital efficiency for traders, and especially it really limits uh, capital efficiency for market makers, because market makers want to trade on every market that the platform supports. But with isolated margining, say DYDX wants to support, you know, 100 markets in the next year, market makers would have to deposit collateral 100 times, uh, which is obviously pretty ridiculous. So that really just limited us in the number of markets that we were able to support on the platform to the point where... And to give people a sense, we literally only had three perpetual markets ever on layer one Ethereum for this okay. reason. And it was, what did you call it? Bitcoin? Yeah, we had Bitcoin perpetuals, uh, ETH, and then uh, Chainlink as well. Chainlink was the choice. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why Chainlink? <laughs> well, it has a good amount of volume. And also there's a good amount of overlap with the, the users uh, okay. that we have, which are oftentimes more DeFi centric. Got it. I mean, I actually wanted to ask you that before when you were talking about these gas prices getting crazy. Was that like during DeFi summer that you really found this problem to be unmanageable? Exactly. And like, yeah, mid okay. to late 2020. And consequently, we really missed out on a lot of the volume uh, that went into like these new DeFi coins, which was tough to foresee. Um, but actually, DYDX had about like 30% market share of all volume on DEXs roughly in the first half of 2020. And then Uniswap obviously just started going crazy um, because people wanted to trade these long tail of markets and not even the long tail, but going from three to on the order of 100 or so, we have captured most of that volume, we think as well. But we were unable to support that because we only had isolated margining. And the reason for that is effectively like one of the things our smart contracts do is whenever a user makes a trade, you have to check that their account is collateralized, uh, which means you have to basically loop through all of the markets on the system. You have to get the Oracle price um, for every single market, which is, you know, number of S loads, at least times like number of markets that you support, which is quite a lot. Um, so that really limited us in terms of like how many assets we could list on the platform, because every single new asset that we would list would have increased gas prices um, for everyone on the system, even if they're not trading on those markets. Um, so there's a super big limiting factor. You know, looking forward to what we now support on Starkware, we support this other mode of margining called cross-margining, which is basically the opposite. It's like you can deposit collateral one time and you can start trading on any different markets uh, or as many markets uh, as you want to using that collateral. And again, market makers can use this as well. So they just deposit one time. It's really easy for them to start quoting on just like any different market they might want to trade on. So the reason we were able to support this on Starkware fundamentally is because of the scalability, because, you know, you no longer have to pay constant number of times, like number of S loads you're doing basically uh, gas per trade anymore. And that's really allowing us to launch a lot of new markets on the platform, which is a really big strategic objective for us. Currently, we're up to, I think, like eight or nine or so, but we're on a pace of about launching two markets per week or so 
mostly just doing that for for growth purposes uh, to kind of like build hype for like every new market that we're launching. But that's like a really big advantage of using layer two as well. It's like you can just do things that weren't really possible on layer one uh, due to gas constraints. Interesting. When you say markets, do you mean pair or do you mean a token? Yeah, pair. New, like two new pairs every week. Right. What are you up to now? Yeah, I guess you could say pairs. I For, for me, I always think kind of in token supported, but I realize that that isn't, I, I don't think that's the way you're thinking about it. It's basically the same thing. Yeah. All of our uh, quote currencies are in uh, USD. So basically we're listing like a new token for each new pair. Okay. Okay. And how many are you up to now? Currently up to nine, I think, but we just launched the platform like a month ago. Okay. So it's nine and growing at yeah. two per week. So that's pretty good. Uh, you said the quote currency was USDC? That's right. Yeah. Cool. Do you foresee a limit though, even on the L2? Like, does it have some point where you're like, actually, it starts to also affect this model? Yeah, I would say it does. I mean, one like limiting factor that we haven't really touched on yet is even with Starks, a pretty big consideration is the proving costs for Starks, which are reasonably high. Still, uh, we're paying more in in gas fees than I'm pretty sure it's costing like Starkware to run uh, their prover engine. But it is a pretty significant uh, consideration as well. So I believe we're, we're we're totally golden until we get to like on the order of like two or three hundred markets. Um, but at that point, we'd have to think about you know scaling the proving engine, uh, making the the verifiers more efficient, things like that. But that's this kind of stuff that Starkware continues to work on, and that I think will continue to improve. Hmm. Do you also see an evolution in the way that your L two setup interacts with the L one going forward, or is this like you've you've done a lot of work to launch this, and this is what it's going to be from now on? No, it's very much like I think a lot of aspects will continue to improve over time. Um, one actually uh, kind of critical thing that our users are still running into basically uh, is kind of in order to onboard to the system, you have to send two transactions, basically one to register your Stark accounts on the smart contract, and then a second to deposit your funds. There's no way to get around like fundamentally, you have to deposit your funds into the system. Uh, one thing I'm excited about is just kind of more bridges between layer twos being a thing. Like imagine if Coinbase or something like that, like we're integrated with uh, Starkware or Optimism or whatever the case may be, and could support just withdrawals directly to layer two. Um, that would be a lot more gas efficient for them and us and the whole system. And I think that's the kind of stuff that's going to start happening over the next year or two whether it's withdrawals from centralized exchanges or it's like a bridge between Optimism or some other layer one in, in Starkware and you know any other chain you might want to trade on. But currently, I guess the state of the world is everyone has to go back to layer one and then maybe move to like whatever uh, layer two you want to, whether that's centralized layer two on uh, your, your favorite centralized exchange or it's your uh, Starkware stuff. But that's still a pretty big constraint, I would say. That question of bridges between the L2s, we, I mean, we have mentioned that, I think, on almost every episode. But like, I, one of the questions I have when I think of that bridge idea is, who builds that exactly? Like, is that agreements? Is that like an individual bridge built every time between two teams? They have to, like, figure out who funds what, and then they, they deliver it. And it only, like, it only provides that one bridge. And there's so many of them that you're going to need so many of these, and each one is bespoke, and it's just a nightmare. That's like, for some reason, that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> I have some very strong opinions here, but it's it's probably best for another another time. <laughs> really? okay. Yeah, probably James can speak a lot better to the technical side of this uh, than I can. 
but maybe I can provide some color on like from a business perspective, yeah. like who is likely to be pushing some of these things forwards. I mean, like I just said, obviously there's a huge incentive for us to to form partnerships with all, either other layer twos or centralized exchanges um, to be able to to do these bridges. And it's just like a massive improvement in onboarding to mm-hmm. DYDX. So I think you'll see just like whether it's you know some form of like revenue sharing or like payments or like incentives or you know it's good for both sides basically. But I think you'll see more of this start to happen from a business perspective soon. Because as we're starting to get these products that have real usage on layer two, you know, they have real incentive to, to make a lot of these things happen. I started to wonder, like, this is a little bit off topic, but it's, it's sort of like the future of Ethereum as this, the role that it's holding. If you have these bridges between the centralized exchanges and other L2s, does ETH and the Ethereum-based chain itself become the store of value? <laughs> like, like, is it no longer a used token? I mean, I guess it would be used for gas fees and that security model, but like, I know, I know you need it in a way, but I'm just like, I'm trying to picture this future where everything is happening in this net above it and what actually happens to that L1. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Macro crypto economics is, is a really hard topic. <laughs> I'll delve too deeply into that, but I still think there will be, you know, at least as much usage of Ethereum, if not more, um, because of these chains that are built on top. Fundamentally, everything has to settle on some layer one chain. Yeah. Um, and clearly, we're, we're uh, currently going with Ethereum as that that layer one chain for a variety of like decentralization, security, et cetera reasons. But I think just that the chain of Ethereum or whatever chain things are settling on will become even more valuable um, because of layer two is not less val- valuable because now you have just all this new financial activity or whatever activity um, that you can unlock and still that's settling on this one chain. Yeah. Going back to the the sort of options you saw for yourself, you never had the idea of building your own L1, did you? No, I didn't personally have the idea of building my own L1. Yeah, I know this, this is a funny way to say it, but it's just like too technically hard, uh, I guess, for, for me personally. Uh, like, I really respect people that work on that and, you know, have the capacity to do that. But I think just for me personally, and kind of given my background at having worked uh, at Coinbase and at Uber and like, as you know, general Silicon Valley engineer, um, have a lot of experience building what I think are like pretty high quality products and being able to, you know, take that technology, um, take that like smart contract scripting language that is provided by whoever's building the layer ones mm-hmm. and transform that into a great product is, is something that I'm a lot more personally interested in. But of course, both sides of the coin are required to, to make something that's great. Yeah. I think my main takeaway from this is that uh, as opposed to the other L2s that are being built and the other rollups we've talked to, all of them have taken this tech first approach and are looking for products. And DYDX has taken the opposite approach, which is start with the goal of being one of the biggest crypto exchanges in three to five years and have filled in the tech to support that goal. And I think that's really interesting and uncommon in the space. And, uh, why do you think you took that approach and, uh, why do you feel like that is uncommon in the space? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it gets back to what I was saying before around why start a company uh, around a product rather than a layer one chain. Uh, what we've seen in Silicon Valley over the years is that it's really hard to build a product uh, that people want to use and that has product market fit, even if you have you know the top class technology in the world. 
it's just hard to find like a product use case that is differentiated, that is 10x better in some way uh, from what has come before. So I think it's a really hard ask to just start with new technology and then say, okay, let's spend most of our effort building the technology. Um, and then we'll think about like the product later, or we'll like come up with something that is useful. And it kind of gets back to also what I was saying with like the two sides of the coin. Of course, there needs to be new technology, but it's, a, it's first of all, very, very hard to build, uh, you know, new world changing technology. And also it is very, very hard to build like a real world changing product on top of new technology. Yeah. And kind of if you multiply those two things together, uh, it's just so, so hard um, if you're building like both the technology and trying to build like the product at the same time. So again, we feel like our main expertise is in building really top class uh, products at DYDX. And also, of course, at least we think understanding uh, new technologies and, and how we can use them to build a great product. But we don't really feel the need to have to build those things ourselves. There are a ton of great people out there that are building them and kind of by forming partnerships with those people and really focusing on just nailing the product use case. Well, of course, understanding the technologies and how that could have implications for what you can build on top of them. But I guess in my opinion, it does make sense to keep those things separate. Like, you know, have one great company that focuses on building the best possible technology and then another great company uh, which focuses on building a product on top of that rather than having them together. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, I, I guess like what it leads me to think about is these rollups that are building out just general smart contract platforms. I guess they're trying to be 10x better than Ethereum. And DYDX has a very different goal in mind. It's not trying to compete with Ethereum for uh, you know market share. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we 100% don't care um, about the scalability technology we use. Well, maybe that's not a great way to put it. We do care. like, But the <laughs> only thing we care about is like the actual you know, benefits to our end users on a lot of different axes, whether that's decentralization, security, performance, uh, all of that. But we are, you know, we have no specific allegiance to like Ethereum or, or something like that. I just honestly think it is giving our users like the best possible trade-offs for decentralization and security and then kind of multiplying that by Starburst performance is the best possible product we can build right now. But if there was something better later on, like, you know, I would definitely go out and settle like Starkware's transactions on like some other chain uh, if it were able to compete on the metrics we care about. Got it. So you are focused on this product. You are a company, I guess, in and you're based mm -hmm. in America. Right. What's your plans for the business itself? Like you talked about wanting to be kind of this an exchange of sorts, but you're still you're at least you have one foot in Dex world. Do you have any plans for decentralization on the company front? Yeah, it's a great question. This is something we're thinking a lot about this year, especially, um, and that's going to be our main area of focus for the next 12 to 18 months or so, is full decentralization of the product. And for us, really, what that means is full decentralization of what I would call the liquidity model and kind of get no longer running the central order book and kind of the central order matching system uh, for a variety of reasons. But we have some ideas on that. We don't have any decisions on it yet. I can talk through like what we're thinking about at a high level. And of course, like I said, we don't really care what technology we're using. We just want to build like at the end of the day, like the best possible use case for our users. So that's kind of the angle we're coming at it from. But OK, talking about this question of like, how do you decentralize like a central limit order book or 
maybe even taking a step back at a high level, it's just like how can you build like the best possible liquidity system uh, for perpetual contracts for the highest volume markets? Because as we talked about, that's where we think most of the volume is. We have a couple of ideas kind of stack ranked. First of all, we're thinking about utilizing more of kind of a request for quote system rather than like an order book system. Um, and the way this would work is effectively there may be like five to 10 market makers or so, which are known in the ecosystem. And whenever you want to make a trade, you just ask all the market makers for a quote. Uh, they get back to you or they don't. Um, and then you just take whoever is giving you the best price. And the reason we think this could work pretty well, specifically for us, is, is twofold. First of all, it supports bespoke markets really well. So order books are really good uh, for just aggregating liquidity. But if you have tons of products and like tons of markets, it's, it's hard for order books to scale to that number of markets, kind of like I was saying before. And one of the things that we are interested in in the long term is kind of the growth of the options markets, um, which is important from kind of a strategic perspective. Right now, uh, perpetuals have about 100x the volume or so of the options market in crypto. But at least personally, I think that's likely to change on kind of like this three to five year time horizon where options and kind of more like even more sophisticated financial products will take up uh, more of the volume share. And options are very bespoke, like there are tons of different expiration dates, there are tons of different strike prices that you could buy. And even in traditional finance, uh, most volume through options markets just runs through kind of this request for quote system. Like if you're trading on a Robinhood or something like that, that's basically how Robinhood works is it just goes mm -hmm. and talks to uh, like these high quality market makers that can provide good liquidity. And that's one of the things we've been focused on a lot at DYDX actually is building these relationships with market makers. Um, I like to think we're at the forefront of that index because a lot of these uh, crypto market makers see DYDX and kind of our current hybrid approach being really approachable uh, coming from centralized exchanges. Like we have an API, we have like a, a trading clients that is pretty similar at the end of the day uh, to what centralized exchanges can support. So we've been able to build a lot of really high quality relationships it's really a top tier market makers in crypto. And this kind of RFQ system could potentially mirror our current liquidity model pretty well. Like right now, it's like, you know, for a given market, probably like three to 10 market makers are providing most of the liquidity. Um, so it could potentially work well. And the cool thing about that is still you only have to put like the actual settlements on chain. Uh, you know, you don't actually need to put the order book on chain. And the issue with putting the order book on chain, which kind of leads to our second potential option here is that order books, the, the main throughput that you require and the main thing that's happening is uh, not trades. It's just orders being placed and canceled and not filled all the time. Um, it's like market makers placing and canceling, repricing orders. And roughly this happens at about 10,000 times the rate of actual trades happening. So, you know, if you're trying to think about moving this to an on-chain system, uh, which again, like point number two that we're considering is building an on-chain order book, something like what Serum is building on Solana. But the real question here is like, how much scalability is your, your solution actually providing? Um, and like, what's the order of magnitude uh, increase uh, in, in roughly you need 10,000 times more scalability or potentially even more to run an on-chain order book than you do if you're just uh, doing the trade settlements on-chain, which could be achievable um, on the time horizon that we care about. But this is very much like a research question as to like, what is the real level of scalability specifically for our use case of like placing and canceling or repricing orders um, on a given chain. And then the third one that I'll just touch on uh, is kind of like moving to more like automated market maker uh, model Put this third. So it's like lowest on the stack ranked uh, for reasons that I touched on before in terms of yeah. like thinking that uh, 
other liquidity models are more efficient for, for building liquidity for the top tier markets. But we are watching what's going on in crypto. Um, you know, like I said, like excited about a lot of the new developments with Uniswap V3 and kind of their what I would define as like hybrid order book, like automated market maker model. Um, and potentially there's something that comes out that could work well for us too. And as the last point I make is uh, once you're fully decentralized, the cool thing is that these options are no longer mutually exclusive. Like you could imagine you have like an AMM or like an on-chain order book, and that could be supplemented by RFQ liquidity. And all of these ideas, like, you know, we're not the first one to think of these, like everyone, like tons of people have tried like every one of these three things. Um, but I think we're uniquely positioned to do it just because of our focus on the product, like relationship with high quality market makers and just being able to translate technologies into really great working products. Does what you described really make you censorship resistant? I mean, you're still a U.S. company. Like if you were able to kind of articulate some of this decentralization that you described in terms of the order book, like would that mean that you no longer have control over it? Yeah, I guess control over it is a bit of a loaded ter <laughs> terminology, depending on who you're asking. But decentralization obviously is a spectrum. And I think it gets us like much, much further to the right. I mean, our goal is to be able to say like all we're doing here is like publishing this open source code that our users are using, whether our users are like end users of the product, or you could imagine potentially we publish like open source nodes that market makers could run as like part of like a RFQ system or something like that. And we're kind of the technology provider in that ecosystem. But I think another thing that we're moving more towards over time is uh, decentralized governance and kind of like decentralized like ownership of the protocol itself. And obviously, there's been a ton of activity in that in DeFi over the past year, mm -hmm. and, and we've been watching. And we think that's you know something we want in terms of like users actually owning and you know having more decision making power in the protocol for ourselves as well. Is that on a public roadmap to actually like create some sort of decentralized governance of the protocol yet? No, no roadmap for that right now. It's just kind of internal thoughts okay. uh, that we're having. But like I said, we're watching everything else that's going on in, in DeFi. And there's obviously a lot of momentum around that. Totally. So I think as a last topic that I want to touch on, and I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, now it's not DeFi summer, it's DeFi whatever is now. I think that the difference here, though, is the price of ETH has gone up so much that if you're outside of crypto, it's brutal. What is your what is your thinking on the state of it right now? Do you do you see it as like, is this the moment that it cro it's crossing over? You've you've also been working in the space for three and a half years or so. I, like I think you might have started around the same time I did. So yeah, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on on the state of DeFi. Yeah, I think the state of DeFi is really interesting right now. I think the thing that Layer One gave us is just it's really easy to experiment and kind of build new things in DeFi, and that's just a really awesome thing. Like it's just so much easier to build in crypto, actually, a financial product than it is in traditional finance. Just one quick like allegory on this. I used to work at Coinbase as a software engineer. And I think the thing people don't realize about Coinbase is like 75 to 80 percent of the work on the engineering side goes into dealing with the traditional financial industry and roughly like 20 percent on like the crypto side. Like what I did was like integrating with banks and stuff. It's a massive headache, even from the technical side, not to even get into kind of the the regulatory and compliance side there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy to, to experiment on DeFi right now, and that's amazing. But as you mentioned, the main limiting factor here is as there's more interesting stuff being built uh, and there's more usage of the chain uh, because there's this really low cap on throughput of the system on layer one Ethereum right now, that just results in these astronomical gas prices. Um, so it's kind of this like balancing function where it's like all this cool stuff that we want, but if it's like too much cool stuff, 
then there's this like cap on how much people are willing to pay for said cool stuff. And I think the thing that is going on in crypto right now, and obviously you mentioned this in terms of the, the types of guests you've been having on the podcast and stuff recently is layer twos are happening. Like they're here, um, like real, like mainstream DeFi products are moving to layer two, uh, you know, DYDX, synthetics. Uh, I think Uniswap has plans uh, to, to launch with optimism really soon as well. And I think over the next six to 12 months or so, we're really going to see almost all the mainstream DeFi products, oh, I think, so just like be on layer two um, in some form or another. Uh, one of the things that is interesting to me as a bit of an aside is everybody seems to be moving uh, to a lot of different layer twos. Like there's not yet consensus around like which layer two is is the best, I guess. And, and of course, there's no objectively best one. It's like different things are better for like different particular use cases. But I think we'll likely at some point see like a, a real like centralization uh, to kind of like the topmost or like the most winning like layer twos as people realize that it's harder um, at least to have like a lot of composability that makes like certain like DeFi products uh, interesting Totally. Uh, if everybody's on different layer twos, but we'll see. Um, so I think it's going to be a really exciting like next 12 to 18 months. But you know, the, we just had this ridiculously huge problem of like, who's going to use DeFi if you have to pay $100 in fees every time you want to do something. Um, and now we're solving that on layer twos. Um, that'll bring like, you know, new issues with composability and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we'll solve those next going forwards as well. Cool. Well, Antonio, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great conversation. If, if anyone wanted to find out more, where do they go? Yeah, so you can head over to our website, dydx.exchange, or just Google dydx and we'll probably show up. Um, and you can join our uh, Discord and ask uh, me or anybody else on the team questions directly, uh, try out the product. I mean, I think, I guess as an aside, like one interesting thing is all of this stuff is live right now. Like we're not just talking anymore. Like go out and use the product and like see the gas fees, like see the user experience and stuff like that and kind of see for yourself about a lot of these technologies that we've been talking about for a while now and kind of related to my last answer. It's like an exciting time where you know, we're not just talking anymore. Go and go and use the products and see what the technology can build. And uh, do you have a Docker container that I can uh, go out and <laughs> run a node on the DYDX roll up. He asked this on the last episode too. Anyway. I'm going to ask this on every episode. <laughs> we don't have a Docker container right now, but I mean, all the data is on uh, on Ethereum itself. So mm-hmm. not no nodes required, I guess, right now. Cool. Cool. All right. So thanks again. A big thank you to Andre, the podcast producer, Henrik, the podcast editor, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs>